You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Um, several months ago, uh, we began our, our lengthy series um, on grasping, gripping, and giving, um, in which we've been exploring sort of God's perspective on our possessions. And as we began that series, uh, you may remember, probably not, but you may remember that we spent some time in the book of Deuteronomy, and we talked about how when God set out to establish a people who would be holy among the nations of the earth, the people that he put at the center of that community to guide a sense of civic responsibility and also to act as gatekeepers to his presence were the one people in all of the nation of Israel who didn't own any property. Think about that. He's giving a perspective on possessions, and he puts kind of, not necessarily in charge in the way that we think of in charge, but this people who were kind of overseeing a lot of the civic and religious liturgies of the people of Israel didn't even own any property. They were the Levites. To impart upon the nation his view of property, he places among the people, this people who don't own any property. And I don't want to rehash all of those things again that we talked about from Deuteronomy several months ago. But I do want to remind you that by setting up the community in that way, God was prioritizing generosity and compassion, particularly for the poor and for uh, those whose situation in life was maybe a little less stable because they, had, they didn't have any land. All of life centered around these leaders who were not uh, self-sufficient or authoritative or exalted like the leaders of the nations were then and still are now. We, we think of leaders, I mean, most of our leaders are people who have tons of money, right? But in God's economy, the leaders were instead dependent. And from a, a, a worldly perspective, they were actually quite poor. Now, since we had that conversation several months ago, I've been digging deeper into Torah. Uh, there's been some discussion of us perhaps having a theology school on Torah in the near future. And so Torah has been on my mind in preparation for that potentiality. And since I found out on Wednesday uh, that I'd be preaching today because of Fred, Fred's illness, that's where our conversation is going to return this morning. We're going to be, I've been thinking about Torah. I'm going to be talking about Torah because that was what was easiest in these last 72 hours or so. Um, and so I hope you're on board with that. I hope we can uh, get something out of this together. I think there are some rich things in the Torah. Toward the end of our time together, we're actually going to return to a discussion of the Levites and consider again how the intentional selection of the Levites helped to center the focus of the community on generosity and compassion. But to get started, I want to give a broad, high-level summary of how I understand the overarching themes of Torah so that as we get toward the end of our time together this morning and our discussion of the Levites, we can appreciate more of exactly how the Levites' role fit into and support those overall themes of the Torah. So we're going to start big and try to give some small examples. It won't, of course, be all of the examples in the Torah, but try to show you what God is doing up here and how he's doing it down here. Now, the Torah, the word Torah is often translated with the English word law. We often think of Torah as an archaic legal code, to our chagrin, I think. We think of it as a, as a legal code that's difficult to understand and somewhat obscure. And for that reason, we most of the time avoid reading Torah. How many of you have read Leviticus lately? Oh, there's one back there. All right, awesome, Bob. Um, but in reality, Torah actually is better translated with the word instruction. And the instruction that is given in, the, given in the Torah contains not only the legal code of the early Israelite community, which we often associate with it, 
but it also contains a narrative that forms the basis for understanding what this people and their God is all about. And that narrative, by the way, also gives us some understanding of how to seemingly or how to interpret those seemingly obscure and archaic uh, legal, uh, that seemingly obscure and archaic legal code that's a part of the Torah that we often think of as the essence of Torah, which it's not. So if you understand the narrative, in other words, you can begin to understand some of the specifics of the legal code of the Torah. But Torah really possesses the fundamental ideas that form the basis of what we might call the Judeo-Christian worldview. The five books that make up the Torah were considered by the Hebrews all the way up into the time of Jesus, and I think probably today, to be the most significant text for their formation as a people. In fact, much of the rest of the Bible, even much of what we read in the New Testament, can largely be understood as an interpretation of the ideas that have their origin in the Torah. The prophets, for example, called the people of Israel and their kings back to the foundational principles of the Torah. Jesus understood and presented himself not to be abolishing Torah, but to be fulfilling Torah. The Apostle Paul talked about love as the fulfillment of the Torah. And so in many ways, we don't often think of it in this way, but Torah is foundational not only to the faith of the Jews, but to those of us who follow Jesus as well, because in Torah, we discover the essence of what it means to begin to see the world from Yahweh's perspective. In contrast to how other peoples and nations see the world. And that's important. That's an important perspective to develop. Back then it was, and it still is today. Unfortunately, though, Torah has often been reduced from a modern Christian perspective into being thought of as simply that out-of-touch legal code. Now, thankfully, Fred does not present the Torah in that way. He spends a lot of time and effort anchoring the gospel in our Jewish roots. But many Christians have almost divorced Christianity from its Jewish roots because of our avoidance of the Hebrew Scriptures. Many Christians have introduced, or, or sorry, reduced Torah almost to the point of making it in, irrelevant for modern faith and practice, when in reality it contains revelation that is absolutely indispensable to understanding the world as it is, as it is seen from Yahweh's perspective. Torah is key not only to understanding the nature of Yahweh, particularly how the God of Israel is set apart from the gods of the nations, but it's also key to understanding the role that God's people play in the world, specifically how we see ourselves and how we understand our role in relationship to the nations. And so with that as a backdrop, the idea that Torah helps us begin to see the world from God's perspective I want us to try to walk through in, a very, in very broad and high-level terms this morning what Torah seems to be about, at least as I understand it. And I'm not always right. Torah, of course, begins with Genesis. Uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis can turn, uh, sorry, contain uh, a narrative that speaks both to the, the nature of God and his rule, as well as an introduction of sin into the world and the formation of the nations, which ultimately are presented in the scriptures as a rival to God's rule. And in some sense, I think we can say that the nations are presented as a type of personification or manifestation of sin itself. The nations, uh, when they're introduced in Genesis and really throughout the entirety of the scriptures, view the world in a way that opposes God's perspective of the world. And that comes to light first in the first several chapters of Genesis. Within that section, 
and maybe it's familiar to many of us, within that section of Genesis, we find the stories of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. We read about humanity's rebellion and the, and the resultant flood. And then that section ends in Genesis 10 and 11 with the rise of a city and a kingdom identified as Babylon. And I talk about Babylon so much when I preach. People are like, somebody found out that I was preaching this week. They said, what are you preaching on, Babylon? Well, it's, it's in there. So yeah, I talk about it a lot. Sorry, but this city and, and kingdom, it's named Babylon, and its people set themselves up as a rival to God and therefore establish a way that is opposed to God's. And so from the very inception of the Torah, I mean, the very introductory verses of the entire Bible, that's how the nations are described. Opposition, they're, they're in opposition to God. They're sort of a, a personification or a manifestation of sin. And then beginning in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to Abram, or to Abraham, as he, he later comes to be known, Abraham is introduced in a way that creates an intentional contrast between his way, or God's way, and the way of the nations. Whereas Babylon, for example, in fear, built a city and a tower in order to keep itself from being scattered, Abraham, in faith, voluntarily allowed himself to be scattered and was sent by God into a land that he, he didn't even know where he was going, the scriptures tell us. Whereas the people of Babylon sought to make their own name great, Abraham trusted God, and consequently God promises that he's going to give Abraham a great name and make him into a great nation. Everything that Babel was striving for in a sinful way, God says, if you'll just trust me, I'll do it for you anyway. We could go further. But the contrast is clear between the way of the nations in the first 11 chapters and the way of Abraham, which begins in chapter 12, and is, of course, ultimately defined as Yahweh's way in the Scripture, whereas the, scripture, or sorry, whereas the nations stand opposed to the way of God, Abraham is later called in the Scriptures God's friend, a friend of Yahweh. Then from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through chapter 50, the narrative of the Torah really focuses on the growth of Abraham's family. It's really a story, the narrative of Genesis rather, focuses on the growth of Abraham's family. It's really the story of the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob's son, Joseph. And then at the end of that portion of the narrative, Joseph and all of Jacob's sons end up in Egypt, which is another nation uh, in the scriptures that stands in opposition to the purposes and the way of God. Of course, after that, we come to the Exodus. Exodus introduces several in, uh, additional themes that help us understand the world from God's perspective or give us God's uh, worldview. First of all, Exodus introduces Yahweh in contrast to the gods and the rulers of the nations. Whereas the kings and the gods of the nations, and particularly in the Exodus, it's Egypt and Pharaoh, but whereas the kings and the gods of the nations are introduced to us as oppressors in the Exodus, rulers who use their authority to dominate and subjugate and overwork the people who are under their sway, Yahweh is introduced in Exodus not as the oppressor of the weak, but as the deliverer of the weak. In contrast to the earthly dominators, for example, he gives the people a Sabbath rest. There's a deliberate contrast between Pharaoh who wouldn't hear the cries of the slaves. He turned his back on them and said, you guys, you guys are just complaining because you're too lazy. Maybe if you work more, you'd complain less. There's a, a contrast in Exodus between Pharaoh who acted in that way and God who, we're told, actually heard the cry of the slaves and delivered them. 
The first 19 chapters of Exodus are a detailed description of how Yahweh's deliverance took place through the ten plagues. And they also tell us there in chapter 19 that he set apart this holy people who would represent his alternative way among all of the rest of the nations of the earth. Exodus 19 is where we get that uh, formula, I'll call it, for, uh, that, we, that we recite each Sunday uh, for identifying who we are as God's people. It's in Exodus 19. Uh, that's what the first place where we hear the people of God called a holy nation and a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood. But then really beginning just after that in Exodus 20, the narrative aspect of the Torah mostly pauses for quite a while, like 57 or 58 chapters. Uh, it picks back up in Numbers. Uh, numbers and Deuteronomy are about the period when Israel is wandering in Numbers, in the early chapters of Deuteronomy, the people of God encounter the nations of Canaan and they're given instruction about how their way of life should contrast the ways of the people of Canaan. The nations, again, in that section of the Torah are representative of a way that opposes Yahweh's way. That's an ongoing theme. And then in Deuteronomy, as we talked about several months ago, uh, it seems Deuteronomy seems largely focused on the people's preparation for entering into the promised land and living as a holy people in the midst of the nations in the land that God, God is about to give them. And so at the beginning of the Torah, God's taking the people out of the nations to make them holy. And that's what this interlude is, this 58 chapters that I'm talking about that we're going to get to today. He makes them holy. And then once he's established sort of some things that will help them live into a holy way. He's like, all right, you're going back in, uh, in the midst of the nations, and we're going to change this place. We're going to remake the world. That's what God's doing in the Torah. Now, I give you that sweeping summary of Torah's narrative, and I know that that's a lot to take in, but I give it to you just so that you can appreciate in a br very broad and general sense how this foundational text for all of Jewish and Christian faith is primarily about creating uh, a, a contrast between Israel and the nations. That's the biggest point of the Torah. It's showing a different way between the way nations act and the way that God's people's, people act. In the early chapters of Genesis, the contrast is made between Babylon and Abraham along with Abraham's family. In Exodus, the contrast is made between the weak and enslaved Israelites and the powerful and oppressive Egyptians. And in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, generally speaking, the contrast is made between the holy people that God is calling and the people in the kingdoms of Canaan, which include among them the people of Moab, and then Sihon and Og, who were kings of the Amorites, along with other nations as well. Sometimes those peoples are referred to as the seven nations of Canaan, and they're listed in different parts of the scriptures as the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And so that's why we refer to them instead as just the people of Canaan. We don't have to say all those names. But again, Torah is really the story of a holy nation whose God and people are set apart in their way of life from every other people on the face of the earth. And then nestled in between Exodus chapter 19 and Numbers chapter 20. So the last 21 chapters of the book of Exodus, the entire book of Leviticus, which I think is 27 chapters, and then the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers. Those uh, 58 chapters, in my estimation, it's probably between 30 and 40% of the Torah. So a very significant part of, the, uh, part of the Torah. But in this section that takes place, all of that is taking place while, the, while Israel is camped at Mount Sinai. While there, while there are narrative portions of that section, like there's, there's a little story in there about Israel's uh, creation of the golden calf, for example, but the main focus of that section is to describe how the people of Israel tended to Yahweh's presence among them 
and how they were to be formed by Yahweh's presence into his likeness so that they could then be placed back among the nations and change the world. Uh, there are a lot of specific instructions on the construction of the tabernacle. That's the last part, uh, the last 21 chapters or so of the book of Exodus. Then when you go into Leviticus, there are instructions on sacrifices, and we're going to come back to that shortly and talk this morning about sacrifices. So uh, get excited. We're going to talk about the Levitical sacrifices this morning. Uh, <laughs> there, are <laughs> there are guidelines for how the Israelites are supposed to purify themselves to prepare for an encounter with God at the tabernacle. And those purification guidelines include some really obscure laws about lepers and bodily discharges and how to clean your homes. There are guidelines for sexual relationships and how that relates to the people's holiness. There are dietary guidelines. There are laws about how to treat the orphan and the, the uh, widow and the foreigner. I really wish we had time to dive into some, some of those commands and talk about why they're there. I wish we had time to talk about the context of some of the more controversial commands of those sections, like the commands about slavery and the commands about patriarchy. Uh, to understand the way that God is using those commands to guide the Israelites toward a, a new society and a new creation, we really have to have a good understanding of the context in which those commands are originally given. Otherwise, we come away from those commands thinking that the Bible is condoning something that it's not condoning, which the overarching narrative of Scripture clearly makes, or makes clear that it is not condoning, but rather that God is moving the, uh, the holy nation away from. We have to read those commands in their context. We don't have time to do that. Maybe we'll do that in uh, theology school. This is my th uh, plug for theology school uh, if we ever get to it for Torah. So if you're interested in that, we'd love to have a good group for theology school. But for now, I want us to see that in Leviticus, just as in Deuteronomy, at the center of all of those guidelines and laws that set parameters for the people's encounter with Yahweh and begin to move them into the direction of something new and holy among the nations that will remake the earth. At the center of all that, God set, all that God sets out to do in Torah are again the Levites. And so as we think again this morning about the significance of this single tribe among the people of Israel, I want us to briefly spend some time looking again at the sacrificial system that was overseen by the Levites. And I particularly want us to pay attention to how the sacrificial system overseen by the Levites was used to form the people of God in a way that contrasted to the way of nations. Everything in the Torah, in my understanding, is about that. We have to understand it through that lens. What is this? How did this make Israel different than the nations? That ought to be our question in approaching the Torah. Last time we talked about the Levites and land. Today we're going to talk about the Levites and you might say liturgy. The book of Leviticus opens with guidelines for sacrifices and offerings. The first seven chapters outline five, at least five different types of offerings. There are the burnt offerings, uh, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, and the guilt offerings. And within this context, the sacrifices and offerings of Israel are contrasted with the sacrifices that the Canaanites made to a God whose name was Molech. In Leviticus 18, 19, we read of the Canaanite sacrifices when it says God's giving a command to set his people apart from the Canaanites. And he says, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. Other versions say, you are not to make any of your children pass through the fire of Molech. The implication, of course, is that the Canaanites offered their children as a burnt offering to Molech. What I think is important to recognize here, though, is that wrapped up in the sacrificial practices of the nations among whom Israel lived 
were the most heinous acts of injustice. For the nations, sacrifices ultimately resulted in their harm of one another. The Ammonites in particular brutally offered their lives of their own children in the fire to appease their gods. But other other societies, other nations sacrificed to appease the gods of war so that they could kill and and conquer and enslave other peoples. Still others sacrificed to fertility gods so that they could accumulate great amounts of wealth, oftentimes at the expense of other people. See, in the ancient Near Eastern world, sacrifice and injustice, sacrifice and violence, sacrifice and human bloodshed, all of those were inseparable in a Canaanite context and really generally in the ancient Near East where God is developing the sacrificial system that looks a little bit different and seems a little bit weird to us because we don't sacrifice in that way anymore. And so with that as our backdrop, I want us to briefly pay attention to the deliberate implications of the sacrificial system that is set up uh, for the people of God in Leviticus, again, in order to form them in a way that contrasted with the nations. Among the five types of offerings that are described in the early chapters of Genesis, two were offerings that were just wholly devoted to God. They had nothing to do with anything else except whole devotion to God. The burnt offerings and the peace offerings were completely burned on the altar to Yahweh. Uh, And I don't pretend by any means to be an expert on this part of Leviticus, but uh, the burnt offering seems to me to have been an established act of absolute trust. Through the burnt offerings, it appears to me that the Israelites were essentially saying to God, Yahweh, because we trust you, we offer this bull to you, which we depend on for some of our sustenance. We, we offer it completely to you. We're holding nothing back from this because we believe, we've seen you work, we believe that you'll provide. And the peace offering seems to have been an act of acknowledging the peace that God has given to his people. Their primary emphasis as part of the peace, peace offering was on the things that God had done for them to bring well-being or to bring shalom. And so like the burnt offerings, the peace offerings were wa- offered to God in their entirety and they were burned up on the altar. In fact, in Leviticus, if you really want to get into the details, uh, the, the peace offering is actually placed on top of the burnt offering and burnt up there before the Lord in its, in its entirety. Those, those offerings seem to have been a way for them to express absolute commitment and trust and an acknowledgement that, God, we're going to pause and give this all to you because we recognize that all of it comes from you anyway. But then among all of the other sacrifices that are described in Leviticus, a portion was held back from God. The rest of the sacrifices were totally, uh, weren't totally burned up on the altar, but they were held back for another purpose. And I'm not going to get too deep into this, but I do want to quickly summarize each of those other tr- three types of sacrifices that are described in Leviticus so that we can appreciate what it was about the sacrifices that made Israel holy among the nations. It wasn't just their acknowledgement of complete devotion to God, Okay. That's sometimes how we approach worship in our context. That's not all that worship is about. It's not just about complete devotion or acknowledgement of God's existence and complete devotion to him. Uh, We're going to see in these other sacrifices that it was more than that. One of the offerings described in Leviticus was the grain offering. We're told in Leviticus 2 that the grain offering was an offering of memorial. The grain offering was an offering of unleavened dough 
that was brought before the Lord to remember what he had done in setting Israel free during the, the exodus. Because they had left in a hurry, such a hurry during the exodus, the Israelites hadn't had time to allow their bread to rise as it usually would. And so unleavened bread became, particularly in the Torah, a reminder or, of, or a memorial of their deliverance from the nation of Egypt. And with the, the grain offering, a handful of that uh, burnt, was burned on the altar as a memorial to the Lord. But unlike the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, the rest of it was used for a different purpose. The rest of it was given to Aaron and his sons, who were the Levites. As, as Levites, they were without an inheritance. As Levites, they were therefore cared for by the congregation of Israel. We talked about that when we talked about the allotment of land. And a portion of that care, God actually, because he was trying to establish his people certain rhythms and understandings of the way that life worked, as, as a portion of that care was then incorporated into the sacrificial system. In their liturgy, in other words, in their worship, they remembered the poor. Worship wasn't just about a personal relationship with God. That wasn't enough. It was also about their interpersonal relationships with one another. As the Israelites offered the grain offering, they honored the Lord not only through off the offering of some type of, uh, you know, sacrifice of their own on the altar, but they also uh, honored God through their sharing with their brother who was in need of their support. Appreciate the context. Unlike the Canaanites among whom they lived, their sacrifices resulted in justice for the vulnerable rather than for injustice. In fact, it's noted, and we'll see this as a theme as we quickly look through these three examples of sacrifices. But it's noted in Leviticus 2.3, this is what it says. The rest of the grain offering, the part that wasn't offered on the altar to God, the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It'll be for the Levites. And then listen to this, okay? We're talking about sacrifices to God here. The part that is for the sons, God says this about it. It is a most holy part. A most holy part of the food offerings. God's trying to make the nations holy, or sorry, make Israel holy so they can show the nations a different way. The thing that he points out in their worship that is most holy is taking care of the Levites. According to the instruction of Leviticus, the most holy part of making an offering to Yahweh was not the part that was set aside and burnt for Yahweh alone. No, in the context of a Canaanite culture which burned its own children, as a sacrifice to its God. In the context of nations whose sacrifices to their gods resulted in all kinds of gross injustices, Yahweh says the most holy part about this whole system, and in fact the most holy part about this people that I'm setting up, the most unique part of this offering, the most unique and important part of your worship is the part that is set aside to take care of your fellow man. Among the Israelites, in other words, there was no confusion about whether or not worship of God had anything to do with how they treated people. For the Israelites, the most holy part of the people's worship of God was how it affected the way that they treated the needy among them. There was no false dichotomy between loving God and loving humans. They were one and the same act. The most holy expression of loving God was loving those who had been formed in his image. Now, after the grain offering in chapter 2, and we'll get through this quick. After the grain offering in chapter 2, uh, instruction is given in Leviticus 4 about the sin offering. The sin offering consisted of the sacrifice of an animal of some kind. Those who had means offered an animal from their herd, like a bull or a, a lamb. 
Those who were poor offered two turtle doves or two pigeons, but there was a provision for the poor in their worship liturgy. The poor were included and still participated. And then after the sin offering came the guilt offering. The guilt offering consisted of a ram that was out without blemish. In Leviticus 5, it was spoken of as compensation for wrongs done. It removed the guilt of unintentional sin from the Israelites. But again, it's noted in Leviticus chapter 7 that for the sin and, and the guilt offerings, like the grain offerings, the most holy part, that's, that's repeated again about these offerings in, in uh, Leviticus 7, the most holy part of the offering was the portion of the meat that was set aside to feed Aaron and his sons who were the Levites without a possession. Now, I know we're getting into stuff that is maybe a little bit heavy and boring, okay? <laughs> But my, my point in talking about some of these rather obscure portions of Hebrew Scripture is to point out that the sacrifice and worship of the holy nation, which centered around commitment and thanksgiving and remembering Yahweh for his mighty and gracious acts, that worship had as its most holy act the feeding and the care of the people at the center of their community who didn't have an inheritance. And so for the people of Israel, every act of worship became an invitation to participate in the generosity and the compassion of God, which was intended, according to the overarching story of the Torah, to remake or recreate the nations. You can see echoes of some of these ideas in passages in the New Testament, like when James says, uh, religion that God our Father uh, accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We don't often make this association, but being polluted by the world has everything to do with using and being unjust and being like the rulers and the kings of the nations. And James is saying, who actually came from a perspective that really valued the Torah, James is saying God is calling you into something different here. At the center of worship for the people of God was participation in the purposes of God for the rest of the world. In fact, we can rightly say that worship in the scriptures is incomplete until there is participation in the purposes of God. Every act of thanksgiving for God's provision, every acknowledgement that our sin and guilt is removed by his grace, every remembrance of his goodness to us in our history and his goodness to our spiritual forefathers in their history, every act of worship is an invitation to participate in the purposes of God to renew all creation, and that begins with generosity and compassion. Now, because our heritage is followers of Jesus and because our story as a holy nation is built on the foundation of the Torah, it really ought to come to, as no surprise to us that this same pattern emerges not only in the Hebrew scriptures but also in the Christian uh, scriptures. And I want us to consider just one example of that this morning in the way that, that Paul draws attention to something that we're going to do at the end of this service, the Eucharist, participate in. I want, you to notice, I want you to notice the themes that are present in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. We're actually going to begin with the latter of those chapters, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, then we're going to bounce back to see how Paul had formed his argument. And it's going to, I think it'll, it'll show that what we're talking about here has some legitimacy. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 20, Paul says, When you come together, it is not really the Lord's, oh, sorry, you, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. And so they were going through something at a table or passing around they're probably having a meal, actually. Uh, and they thought that they were observing the Lord's Supper. But Paul says, 
it's not the Lord's Supper, and let me tell you why. And what he says is going to tie in with some of the themes of worship that we just looked at from Leviticus. All right, verse 21. Uh, when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. Verse 21. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper ahead of others. So one person is hungry and another gets drunk. And so in this meal that's supposed to be commemorating who God is and what he's like, some people are overindulgent and other people are in tremendous need right in the same room with one another. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Are you, do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? And I, I don't know that this is what Paul's thinking, but when I read it, here's what I think. In the Torah, I established my people around the people who had nothing. Would you really come to the table and show disregard for the people that were at the center of what I was trying to do to change the nations? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. He's saying, look, you're... You're not participating in worship because you don't consider the poor. At your meal in celebration of the Lord of the deliverance, you are not considering those right in your midst who need some of what you have just for their basic sustenance. You're not considering deliverance and justice of the, the deliverance and justice of the needy, even as you're supposed to be remembering the God of deliverance and justice. And so he goes on, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. There's a, there's a giving here. Do this in remembrance of me. And we know from the Old Testament that whenever you remembered, you were supposed to participate. Whenever you remember what God is like, you do what God is like. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I, again, I think in the context, the implication of Paul's words is, look, you can't proclaim in this meal the goodness of the Lord who gave his life for you, while at the very same time, you're too self-centered and overindulgent to even give some of your food to your needy brother. Think about it. It doesn't make sense. Worship without participation isn't worship. Worship without participation is hollow. And it's almost, I could just hear him saying, why don't you remember the precedent of the Torah? In fact, lest we think that I'm making that up, he actually talked about the Torah a few verses earlier. Look at the first, first uh, part of uh, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul had begun his discussion that led into this, uh, these commands about the Eucharist and taking care of one another at the Eucharist. All right, look where Paul begins. We're going to read kind of a lengthy passage of this, about 18 verses, so hang tight. But pay attention to the context. 1 Corinthians 10.1. Now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. When did that, when did that take place? It's in the Torah, right? It's in the Exodus, right? Part of the Torah, all right? So, hey, remember the Exodus, Paul says? All right. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Uh, you know, he's, he's using an image from Exodus chapter 17, which is, again, a part of the Torah, to make his point about the Eucharist here. But God, verse 5, but God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the wilderness, now these things became examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. 
Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. Let us not commit some sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people fell dead. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. A lot of this section here is about numbers. Uh, These are images of, of the book of Numbers, but still in the Torah. He says, nor should we complain as some of them did, this is verse 10, and were killed by the destroyer. Numbers is essentially a book of complaining, all right? So he's referring to the things that we're talking about in the Torah. And then he says this, Now these things happened to them as examples, and they were written as warning to us on whom the end of the ages have come. So what began in the Torah, you know more about, and this is your example. You're supposed to live in the same way they were, except you've got more uh, information, and and, and you've got the Spirit of God, by the way, uh, to live into this. So whoever thinks he must, or sorry, whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has taken you except what is common to humanity. Now, you know, I think this applies in a general sense to temptation, all right? I do. Uh, and I, th- I think oftentimes we read this and we think, well, what's my temptation? Well, I, I struggle with uh, whatever my struggle is. But in the context of the Torah, really the temptation of the Israelites was to move away from God's way into ways of injustice. Uh, and that was dis- displayed in different ways. But that's, that sort of forms the, the context, I think, of some of these commands that he's been referring to. Uh, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way to escape so that you are able to bear it. And so Paul's connecting for the believers in Corinth who were not all Jewish. But he's connecting... Uh, even though they weren't all Jewish, he's connecting them to their Jewish heritage. And he's saying, learn from the example of the Torah. Learn from the example. Read your Torah. Read your Torah. And then after referencing the Torah and its connection to what it means to be followers of Jesus, Paul goes on to turn his attention toward the Eucharist. And he also is drawing meaning from the images of the sacrifices that we just talked about in Leviticus. And he says this, verses 14 through 18, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what you say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And his point is, look, we can't come together and celebrate the Eucharist and not care about each other. We're one. And then as a final nod to the Torah, he says in verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? I I wish we had time to think really deeply. We're kind of rushing through this, and it may not allow us to truly appreciate the connections that are being made here. But in light of all that we've gone over this morning, try to appreciate some of the connections. In this grand section of 1 Corinthians that lands in Paul's instruction about this table, he begins in the early verses of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians talking about the idolatry of the people of Israel, how in the midst of being delivered from the hand of the Egyptians, they participated in the idolatry and the sexual immorality that was a part of the way of nations. He was calling them out, but they kept going back in. Rather than being concerned for his people or for his purpose in delivering them, they simply continued to live like they were a part of a nation out of which they had come. While they were wandering between Egypt and the promised land, they weren't really understanding God's purpose in bringing them out of the nations. They were still participating in life and in worship as it had been defined not by 
Yahweh, but by the nations out of which they had come. Oh, this is so applicable. (laughs) And so God establishes the sacrifices and the altar and the tabernacle to remind them that they hadn't just been delivered from their oppression, but they had been invited to participate in the vision of God for all the nations. They were participants in what they remembered at the altar. And so he says, do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? And he's drawing their attention again to Torah. But as Paul remembers that participation described in the early chapters of Leviticus, he adopts that very same image, their participation in the altar. Their image, the image of their worship and their thanksgiving and their remembrance and their forgiveness and their the release of their guilt and its connection to their participation in and particularly uh, in the purposes of God, but particularly in the generosity and the compassion of God. That's what a lot of the the interlude in Leviticus or Exodus between, or sorry, in the Torah between Exodus. 19 and Numbers chapter 10 is all about. It's about establishing a people and developing a people who understand the generosity and the compassion of God toward them so that they will then be generous and compassionate toward other people and, sh- and show the nations a different way of being. And, and Paul takes that beautiful image from the Torah and he applies it to this table. And he says, is not the cup and the bread a participation in the body of Christ? In other words, he's saying, is this table not a reminder that those of us who come here are invited to join God in what he is doing in the world in a way that mirrors Israel's being invited to participate in the sacrifices. And so in accordance with the ancient scriptures this morning, as we meet around the table, and I'll reach for this, but, um, as we meet around this table, the Lord, I'm sorry, y'all, I've got a bad hand and it's causing trouble this morning. I got my whole left side is but as we, as we meet around this table, an invitation is extended to us. And the invitation is one that is first issued to the people of God in the sacrificial system that we described in Leviticus this morning. And the invitation is this. Come and worship like they did at the burnt offerings. Come and give thanks like they did with the grain offerings. Come and remember what God is like, which was also a part of the grain offerings. It was a memorial. Come and receive forgiveness. Come and be lifted of the weight of your guilt. There's a lot of imagery here that's very similar to the sacrifices of the Torah, but we can't end there because the invitation is also come and participate in what God is doing to remake the nations through the generosity and compassion of his people. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.